Good morning. Hope everyone is doing well. Um, like Bland said, my name is Tyler. I am the uh, community groups director here. And I also want to say, if, if you're new or if it's your first time here, super glad you're here. Um, even if you consider yourself a Christian, I totally understand coming to a church for the first time can be really um, difficult, especially during COVID. Um, it's good to be back with you guys. I realized this week, I actually haven't been here in about four weeks. My wife and I, Ashlyn, as some of you know, we welcomed our first child into the world. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, on, on December 22nd, um, I think we have some, some pictures. Her name is Adelina. Uh, we call her Addie. Um, Ashlyn did great uh, giving birth. Uh, she did great. Um, Ashlyn's healthy. Baby's healthy. We're doing well. Although during the prayer, I am 99% sure I heard her cry. So I look back right now, and I don't see them there. So that was definitely her. Um, it kind of hasn't hit that we're parents yet, to be honest. Uh, I was telling someone the other day, it kind of feels like we're caretakers more so. Um, you know, I'm really excited to be, I, I am a dad, but I'm really excited to be a dad in terms of imparting fatherly wisdom. Really excited to be a dad and, and wear white New Balances and say absolutely terrible jokes. <laughs> and you know, uh, when Ashlyn got pregnant, um, people told us a lot of things about parenting. Uh, and everything they said is true. Baby cries a lot. Baby eats, the baby poops, the baby sleeps. That's what the baby does. The one thing uh, that I was actually not prepared for, um, and I'm not joking about this, was the amount of hot drinks and hot plates that kind of get left on the counter as you kind of go and do your thing. Like, it's funny, like, I can handle all the other things. I can handle the dirty diapers, but, like, that's where I draw the line. It's like, I want my hot coffee. I want my hot plate. But in all seriousness, uh, we feel blessed and and happy just to have a a healthy baby um, and a healthy mom. Uh, So, yeah, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians 4. If you have your apps, you can open up your app to Ephesians 4, verse 25. Um, And we're going to go all the way through chapter 5, verse 2 today. Um, And if you're new or you just haven't been to Koa in a while, we're uh, in a series through the book of Ephesians. And the past like three to four months, we've been going through the first half of the book, right? Chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so far, it's kind of revolved at large around this idea of just God's blessing, Right, the first three chapters talk a lot about the spiritual blessings that God gives us in Christ. And one of my favorite themes, if you go back and read, especially Ephesians 1, but all of them, and if you go back and read it, just look at God's activity in the book. Right, God's the one doing everything, and we're doing little to nothing. Right, God's the one blessing us in Christ. God's the one saving people. God's the one uniting his people. God's the one revealing the mystery of the gospel. God is doing everything. And I think Paul who he wrote Ephesians, I think he does this intentionally, right? I think he starts the book by saying, this is everything that God has done. And it's not really until chapter four that he actually starts to talk about what we should do, right? What we should do in light of those things. It's almost as if Paul is saying, look at everything God has done. Okay, now, because of that, this is how you are to live. And if you were here last week, you heard Bland say, if you don't read these verses in the context of Ephesians as a whole, you're gonna read them as a list of do's and don'ts. The same thing is true for our passage today. The same thing is going to be true for really the rest of our time in Ephesians. Because again, Paul is kind of shifting and starting to talk about how Christians should live. As we come to our text today, the verses prior, um, they talk about taking off the old self and putting on the new self. And uh, in this text, Paul is just kind of expanding on this idea. He's kind of giving some visuals. He's answering the question, what does it actually look like to put on the new self? So Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. I'll read this at the end. I'll I'll say this is the word of the Lord if you'll respond by saying thanks be to God. Therefore, 
Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. So again, Paul is giving us insight into what it looks like to put on the new self. And he kind of summarizes it um, with one statement in in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. So it's my hope today that as we kind of work through this passage and talk about these things that... um, You don't read these verses, you don't hear these words and think, oh, I should do this this way and don't do that this way, or oh, I should do this or don't do that. I hope you see that Paul is actually telling us to imitate the living God. Paul is telling us to be imitators of God. And two things I want to talk about in light of that, two things to kind of guide our our time today. Um, First is the basis of our imitation, right? Why do we imitate God in the first place? What is our foundation for imitating God? Secondly, I want to ask the question, what does it actually look like to imitate God? What are some examples of imitation? What is Paul telling us to do and not do here? So those two things will kind of guide where we're going. Um, First, the basis of our imitation. So I think if you were to walk up to the average Joe in the street and kind of list these things that Paul talks about, nine times out of 10, they would agree with those statements, right? At least in verses 25 to 32, right? Most people, whether they're, Um, anti-Christian or anti-religious would agree with the idea that you should tell the truth. Most people would agree with the idea that you should not steal. Most people would agree with the idea that you shouldn't be bitter, right? Hundreds, if not thousands of other religions also teach these same things. And so on the surface, it almost looks like there's no difference between the Christian and the atheist. It almost looks like there's no difference between Christianity and a ton of other religions, right? And what's actually ironic is if you were to ask a Christian what makes them a Christian, not everyone would answer this way, but a lot of people, they'd stop, they'd think like, hmm, well, I think I'm a Christian because I do this. I think I'm a Christian because I don't do that, right? Not everyone's going to answer that way, but some would. But I think the difference comes along is when you ask the question, why? Why do we do these things? Why don't we do these things? Most will simply say we do these things because they're good, right? They're morally good. You want to be a good person, so you do these good things. You don't want to be a bad person, so you don't do these bad things, right? Isn't that essentially what Paul's saying here? But he's actually saying, what he's saying here in Ephesians, what therefore Christianity is saying at large, do these things not because they're good or bad, but do these things because God says we are new. We have a new self and a new identity. And it is from that that we do these things. Our activities, what we do and don't do, flow forth from this new identity. And God also says we're beloved children. So these two things, these two ideas, the fact that we are new and we are beloved children, this is the basis of our imitation. 
So to talk about those two things, God says we are new. I know we talked about this last week, but I, I think it's extremely important to hit on again, um, to be reminded of this, because as we talk about just over the next few months, how are you supposed to live your life? You have to remember first what God says about you. You have to remember first that you are new. Every single week, I, I have to imagine Bland or Rose Preaching is going to come up here and he's going to remind us of that. This helps us avoid Christianity becoming a list of do's and don'ts. Section right before our 17 through 24, Paul tells us to put off the old self, put on the new self. Last week, Bland said Christianity, becoming a Christian, is not just a change in what you do, it's a change in who you are, right? You're new. You're a brand new person. I think this points to the uniqueness of Christianity because Christianity addresses the whole person, your whole self. Christianity doesn't address just how you act, your moral behaviors. Christianity doesn't address your, just your generosity. Christianity doesn't address just your intellect. It doesn't address just your spirituality. It addresses your whole self. And it gives you an entire new self. Christianity doesn't just give you a new spirituality. It doesn't just give you a new system, a new moral system. It gives you a brand new self. Having a um, newborn, you are up at weird hours and your schedule's all whacked and, and, and you're doing things you normally don't, knew, don't do. Um, I normally don't watch the news, but uh, for some reason, ever since Addie's been born, I've been watching the news. I, I don't know why. But I saw a clip recently uh, about a man named Thomas Randall. Anyone here see that? Thomas Randall? No? Okay. Thomas Randall uh, is actually a man named Ted Conrad. And Ted Conrad robbed a bank in Cleveland in 1969. And he got away with about uh, what is equivalent today, $2 million, and obviously he fled. And he actually ended up just outside of Boston. And not even a year after he robbed the bank, he, he walked into a Social Security office here, got a brand new Social Security card with a brand new name, and Ted Conrad became Thomas Randall. Right? So in that moment, in an instant, he became new. But at the same time, he had to work to change himself. Right? He had to work to become uh, Thomas Randall. He had to work to eventually uh, become the Thomas Randall who married someone and who had kids and worked an honest job and had friends that thought very highly of him. He had to work to do those things. And side note, it's pretty interesting. His confession of being uh, Ted Conrad didn't come until the very end. It was a deathbed confession. He confessed to his wife and his, his kids like on his deathbed. Can you imagine that? Um, he had to work to change himself. And so in one sense, Thomas Randall, Ted Conrad, it's similar because in a moment he was made new, but it's different from Christianity in that he had to work to become new. Thomas Randall was the one calling the shots, right? He was the one putting in the work to become this new person. He was in charge of his life and he had to do certain things to do that. I think many of us look at Christianity that way. Many of us look at, um, oh, I want to become a better Christian. This is what we do, Right? We think I better get my act together and start doing this and I better stop doing that. We think I better go to church, better go to CG, better start praying. Those aren't bad things to start doing, but in a sense, what we're actually doing when we say those things, if we say this is what it means to be a Christian, then what we're doing is we're just, we're just saying, I'm just actually gonna become religious, right? I'm not gonna become new, I'm gonna become religious. Because becoming religious is something you do, becoming new is something that's given to you. It's something that God does for you. And it's something that's given to you that comes at a cost too, right? Elsewhere in scripture, Paul says, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are made new when we trust in what Jesus did on the cross. What Jesus did on the cross was take on our old self. 
took on our sinful ways of living and then gave us his new self. The verses prior to ours, I think uh, verse 24 says that our new self is made in the likeness of God and has the true righteousness and holiness. That's Jesus. Our new self is after Jesus, made after Jesus. Second Corinthians, another letter written by Paul. Um, he says it a different way. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So again, when you become a Christian, it's not the upgraded version of yourself. It's not 2.0, right? You're a brand new creation, a brand new creation. And this is part of the basis of our imitation of God. We imitate God as new creatures, as being made new. Our old self, our old ways of living, we put them off. Secondly, the second part of our basis of kind of imitating God, um, look at verse one in chapter five. We're told to be imitators of God as beloved children. So the main command here, be imitators of God. Obviously we see that. That's kind of the, in, in general, what we're talking about today, but the second part, don't miss that. It kind of slips by unnoticed. As I was studying this passage, I actually, it didn't even hit me what this was saying until later on in my study, right? As beloved children. So this describes both how God sees us and how we are to imitate him. So you might imitate your boss at work because she's really good at what she does and she's made it to a certain point in her career um, in the same field you're in and you wanna be at that point too, so you imitate her, right? You might imitate um, a close friend or a roommate because you just spend a lot of time with them. So you pick up on their habits and their tendencies and their actions and so you start to imitate them. Right, those aren't bad reasons to imitate people. Those aren't bad reasons to imitate God. We ought to imitate God because he's good at being godly. There's no one more godly than God, right? So we ought to imitate him. We ought to imitate God because we're spending a lot of time with him, right? The time in the word and in prayer as, as we read the Bible and soak in who God is and see his actions and his character, we ought to emulate that. Those ought to be reasons we imitate God. But the text is also telling us that we ought to imitate him as beloved children. As beloved children. So let me ask, why does a child imitate their parent? It's not because the child has the ability to tell what you do as good and bad. When Addie is eight years old, and that's an age where people are really impressionable, like she's not gonna look at my actions and say, my dad's really good at these things, so I'm gonna imitate that, but he's really bad at these things, so I'm not gonna imitate that, no. Because children pick up on the bad habits of their parents too. Children imitate you because they love you, because they have affection for you, because ultimately they have a personal relationship with you. To imitate someone really well, it takes a personal relationship. Same thing goes for us in imitating God, right? Our imitation of God is supposed to be like a child and their parent. I mean, God's our father, right? We're his children. We ought to imitate him like that. So it's important for us to lay this foundation first um, for multiple reasons. But I think ultimately, don't fool yourself. Even without this foundation, as we talk about the rest of these verses, 25 through 32, even without this foundation, you can still do and say all the right things. You can still do and say all the things that Paul is telling you to do and say, and you can look like a fantastic Christian on the outside. But if you lack the foundation of being new, being made new, if you lack the foundation of being a beloved child of God, 
Ultimately, if you lack this foundation of a personal relationship with God, you miss the mark. You miss what Paul really wants you to hear. You miss living the life that God wants you to live. God first doesn't want you to live a morally upright life. God first wants you to live a life in communion with him. That's the foundation. Uh, To illustrate this a little bit, my wife and I, we've been kind of slowly easing our way into the housing market, which if you know anything about the housing market right now, it's a terrible time to do that. But here we are. Uh, And um, we went and saw a condo this week, actually, and uh, it was pretty interesting. I I realized uh, myself and Ashlyn, um, we were looking a lot at kind of the exterior and the aesthetics of the place, right? How does it actually look? How are the kitchen countertops? How are the appliances? How's the paint? How are the walls, the flooring? How's the, the space laid out? Like, how does it look? Does it look appealing? And our realtor, uh, he, he did those things too, right? He looked at the space. But what surprised me is he actually took us down to the basement after we saw um, the apartment itself. And we spent more time looking at things in the basement than we, than we did the apartment. And he was checking out the foundation of the house, He was looking for water damage. He was looking for cracks in the walls. He was looking at the structure. He was looking at the foundation to make sure it was sound because he knew in all his years of wisdom and experience being a realtor, he knew that if there was a problem in the foundation, one of two things were gonna happen. One, just the house isn't worth as much as you really think it is. Or two, it's just gonna cause problems later down the line, right? It's gonna cost us more money later down the line or You know, we've all seen issues of buildings collapsing because of foundation issues, all these things, right? So as we start to talk about verses 25 through 32, please keep these things in mind. These actions, they aren't what define your faith. They flow from your faith, right? They flow from God's love for you and your love for God. But at the same time, we do have to acknowledge like there are standards to reach for in Christianity, Right? Christianity does have a moral system. Christianity does have laws. Christianity does have lists of do's and don'ts. Christianity does have an ethic that we are told to live by. And some people might try to explain, uh, explain this away and say, that's legalistic, right? You're, you're focusing on do's and don'ts. That's, that's legalism. That's legalistic, right? And it is legalistic. If those standards, if those do's and don'ts don't come before God's love for you, But what we're saying and what scripture says everywhere is that God's love for you comes before do's and don'ts. God says, I love you. Therefore, go and do these things, not do these things. Therefore, I love you. So knowing this, quite simply, how should we imitate God? What does it actually look like to imitate God? And Paul gives us great insight into this, verses 25 through 32. It's not exhaustive. Um, These aren't the only ways to imitate God. Uh, There are a lot of other ways to imitate God. Um, And to be honest, we're only going to hit a few of them really hard. And some of them we're going to kind of, you know, a mile wide, inch deep kind of thing. And I think when we read parts of the Bible like this, like our section today, it it can kind of act like a mirror. Right? When I read the verse, be angry and do not sin, I bet the majority of us immediately held it up like a mirror and thought, how do I measure up to this? Right? Immediately you're thinking, oh, I need to need to work on my anger issues, or maybe it was, oh, I need to stop gossiping, or, oh, I just, I need to do better, right? But I would challenge us as, as we talk about these things, it's deeper than that. It's deeper than assessing how you act and how you behave. It's actually a mirror into what you believe. Again, Bland said last week, you do certain things because you believe certain things. You also don't do certain things because you don't believe other things. 
So for example, when scripture tells you to pray, don't just think, I gotta gotta pray more. That's it, I gotta pray more. No, ask yourself, what am I not believing about the power and necessity of prayer? Or in this scripture, it tells you not to talk in a corrupting manner. Don't just think I should stop talking bad about this person. I should stop talking bad about this thing. But rather ask yourself, what am I not believing about the power of words? What am I not believing about the command to to tame the tongue? Think ultimately, you can boil it down to belief drives behavior. Behavior doesn't drive belief. Belief drives behavior. So let's talk about some of these things. Verse 25 Um, Paul says to put away falsehood and speak the truth to each other. The word falsehood seems to imply something much more broad than a direct lie. It's more broad than that, right? Bending the truth so that you look better or so your stories seem more interesting falls under this. Slight exaggerations in stories. I'm super guilty of that one. My wife can attest to that. I tend to be a dramatic person. So it's kind of funny, like, if three people come up and I have to tell them the same story, it gets more and more intense. So if you come up and ask me like, oh, how's it going with Addie? I'm like, oh, she's good. She only really cries like 10 minutes at a time. Next person, oh, she's good. She only really cries like 20 minutes at a time. Next person, oh, this baby's crazy. She cries like three hours at a time, I swear. (laughs) And I mean, there's a difference in, in doing that for jest and in jest. And there's a difference in doing that to get some kind of reaction out of people. Withholding the truth would fall under this too. So when you share at community group how you're doing, uh uh-oh, you say you're fine, but you're not. Paul says, put that away. Paul says, speak truthfully to each other. Why? Because we are members one of another, because we belong to each other. Earlier in Ephesians, uh, Paul talks a lot about the uniting of people under Christ. We are united together. We belong to each other. We don't just all go to the same church on Sundays. We are part of a family bought by the blood of Christ and we have to treat each other as such. Notice that almost every command that Paul gives in this section, he kind of lists a reason after that, right? You notice this section, um, it kind of has a rough order of don't do this, do this because of this. And it correlates with the previous section where Paul said, Put off the old self, put on the new self. And every reason he gives, every single one of them, involves other people. So what does that mean? That means your imitation of God is not just about you. Your imitation of God isn't just so you can have a better morally upright life. Your imitation of God is also for the good of others. John Stott, who's a great pastor, he says, holiness, imitating God, is not a mystical condition experienced in relation to God, but in isolation from human beings. You cannot be good in a vacuum, but only in the real world of people. And I think we tend to read passages like this one and think the only implications of the commands are for ourselves. Right? But scripture rejects that idea entirely. Ephesians as a whole rejects that idea entirely, right? I think this is actually one area where the Western church, or more accurately, the American church has missed the mark. Right? We think our faith is about me. But really, it's the opposite is true. Your life before you knew Jesus was about you. Your life before Jesus saved you, the universe revolved around you. But now, now that you've been saved, your life is about God. 
Your life is about other people. Like, like it's amazing. Literally go reread Ephesians 1 and read about all these massive blessings that God gives his people in Christ. And look in particular how many times Paul says we and us. And how many times he doesn't say you. And I can say with almost like 95% certainty that when he does says you, it's likely in the plural, you guys. But I would argue it's, it's most people's natural disposition to read these things and only think about it in light of me and my life. But Paul's saying, no, this is also for the good of the people around you, both those who know Jesus and who don't know Jesus. Moving on, verse 26 says, do not sin in your anger. Notice it doesn't say don't be angry, right? But it says don't sin in your anger. I, I think there's totally healthy anger. Jesus expressed healthy anger. And, and I think I would argue um, we ought to be angry at things too because being angry at things mean you care about something or someone. David Paulson in his book, Good and Angry, defines anger like this, active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. In other words, that's saying anger when you're angry, that's saying that matters to me. We all experience this in different ways, right? Some of us, like a firecracker, you just blow up. Some of us simmer for a long time and you're like a pot that boils over. Some of you just get really quiet and it turns into like a silent treatment type of thing. There's a rare breed of us that get really mad at objects. That's me. Like literally I'll stub my toe on a chair and I'll turn around and I will be like, you are the most disgusting chair I've ever seen in my life. You're so stupid. Look at the way you're built, your colors, you're do- like, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, we all experience this in different ways, right? And so then the natural question that arises then, is what, what does it mean to be angry and to sin? What's the difference then? And to be honest, it's, it's, it's impossible to draw an objective line It does differ slightly from person to person, but I I will say this. When you attempt to satisfy your anger at the expense of others, so in other words, you try to satisfy your anger not for their own good, but for your own satisfaction, I would argue that's where it becomes a sin. I would argue that when you're angry and you're having these angry thoughts, if you think thoughts that are untrue about a person, blatantly untrue, and it's anger that drives those thoughts, that's a sin. Or if you think true thoughts, but you think them with malicious intent, that's a sin. Frederick Buechner says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Satisfying anger is like a feast. Maybe you resist for a little while. Maybe you dabble a little bit here and there the little appetizer going. But eventually, if you don't deal with it properly, you're gonna dive in. And I think, part of me wants to like give a lot of reasons, or ways to deal with anger, but I'm just, just two brief ones, two things. The first one's simple. When I say it, you're gonna be like, okay, come on. Pray. <laughs> Pray for people. Pray for the very people you're angry about. I have found in my lifetime, if I'm praying for the people that I'm angry at, if I'm praying for them to know Jesus better, for them to reflect Jesus more in their life, and I'm praying for me to be of assistance in that, it's a lot harder to get angry at them. Secondly, when you get angry, 
Ask yourself, what are you believing that's causing this? Back to the whole beliefs, beliefs drive behavior, right? You might get angry at a passive aggressive comment that a coworker makes. All right, ask yourself, what are you believing about what they said? What do you believe about your worth and your value if you feel super disrespected, right? Or like your dignity was stripped away. I'm not saying that you shouldn't say, hey, this really hurt me in this way. But I'm saying, ask, why do you feel that way? Because ultimately, Paul's telling us to put that off, right? Put that off because God has given you a new self. And in Christ Jesus, you have everything you thought you were stripped away of. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? It means reconcile, reconcile. Go and reconcile. Whether you need to reconcile it within yourself or whether you need to go and reconcile with someone else. Jesus himself literally said, before you even go and offer a sacrifice to God, before you worship God, go and reconcile with your brother if you have an issue with him or if he has an issue with you. Clearly, reconciliation is extremely important to our Lord Jesus, so it should be to us too. But does this mean a husband and wife at 11.59 p.m. get in a fight that they have to reconcile before it becomes midnight? No. Paul's saying, don't let your anger fester. Don't let your anger fester. Why? Next verse says it. Because festered anger is an opportunity for the devil. Maybe, um, maybe this is just me personally. I don't tend to think of my own very actions as the things that are giving opportunity to the devil, right? I usually think it's the opposite. Usually it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I got angry, I, I, I was upset. I, I think I'm under spiritual attack, <laughs> right? And sometimes that happens. Sometimes that legitimately happens. But we don't often think about our own anger, our own actions as the very things that are inviting these spiritual attacks, that are inviting the attacks of the devil. It's like, it's like Frodo in Lord of the Rings and the ring, right? There's this ring of power and um, the, the, the big bad guy Sauron, he wants this ring of power back, but he doesn't quite know where it is. But anytime Frodo puts on that ring, Sauron instantly knows where he is. He sends people after him. I have to think that's what anger is like. You put on anger, you immediately open yourself to spiritual attacks. When you let anger fester, it's safe to say the devil, spiritual attacks, those things are close by, ready to jump on you. But Paul says, put those things off and reconcile. Verse 28 says, do not steal, but do honest work so you can give to people who are in need. So Paul doesn't just say stop stealing, which maybe some of us, all of us need to do that, whether it's shoplifting addiction, whether it's stealing um, hours from your work, whether it's not managing your time properly, and so you're stealing away hours from your family. Uh-oh, that's what I do. <laughs> he doesn't just say those things, but he also says, do honest work so you can give to those in need. The purpose of working, Paul is saying here, is to give to other people. You ever thought about your income in its totality, you thought about your income, the purpose of it is to use for other people. I don't normally think of it like that. I usually think of that last with whatever I have left over, right? It doesn't mean you give 100% away. That means there's wisdom in what you do. 
part of giving your money away is also giving your money to your family to, to support them well and, and get the things you need to get and do the things you need to do. But he's saying working is so you can give, not so you can get. Here's the thing. It's, it's really simple. Jesus was generous. Jesus worked so he could give. The mark of our savior was generosity. Ought to be the same with us, right? He was so quick to generously, generously meet a need in the perfect way. And generosity, it's, it's not just something you do. It's not just something Jesus did. It's kind of an attitude, a disposition, a lifestyle, right? When you think of someone that's really generous, you don't, it's hard to kind of say this. You don't think of them as like, their actions are generous. You think of them as a generous person, right? Generosity wasn't an afterthought in the ministry of Jesus. That ought to be us too. Grouping the last three to four verses together, kind of in general, he t- Paul tells us to put off talk and actions that are harmful and not helpful to others. I mean, I guess you could summarize all of them that way. But these last four specifically, Paul tells us to put off talk and action that are harmful and not helpful to others. He says, don't talk corruptly. Another way to translate the Greek word for corrupt is rotten. Don't let rotten talk come out of your mouths. Why? Because words are powerful. Your tongue is powerful. It's powerful and it's dangerous too. Look at what James 3 says about the power of the tongue. And honestly, it's not a pretty picture. It actually feels quite dramatic but it's true. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. What? What? Restless evil, full of dead? That's extreme. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. I think we are vastly unaware of how powerful our words are. Right, the phrase sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me is not true. It's not true. It's a lie. I think all of us here can remember, remember plenty of moments where someone spoke something hurtful. They used a harsh word. They said something painful. Very likely it was by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Right, we've all received painful words. We've also all given painful words. Many of us in this room have given painful words to other people in this room. Some of us have said corrupt, rotten things about people. Paul says, put that off. Sometimes these words are obvious, and sometimes they're not. I had a small comment here that you made to hopefully sway someone's opinion on someone else. I had a small comment about being displeased about something in a certain way that you hope to sway someone else's thoughts about it. That's corrupting talk. That doesn't mean you don't talk about difficult circumstances. That doesn't mean you don't talk about difficult people, but it means you check yourself. It means you check your posture and how your heart's feeling as you head into those kinds of conversations, right? Ask yourself the question, when you're talking about something, when you're talking about someone, do you still deeply desire brotherly love, sisterly love and affection for and with that person? Do you still deeply desire intimacy for them, uh, with them, and in them with God? And when you go into those conversations, are you genuinely seeking godly counsel and godly advice? Or are you just trying to paint a poor picture of someone? 
or a poor picture of something. Paul says, don't let rotten words come out of your mouth, but rather only speak things that build people up and that impart grace to others. So he says, don't don't talk corruptly, but talk in a way that builds people up, that imparts grace. Another way to to look at this is ask the question, are my words bringing grace to this situation? Are my words bringing grace to this person? That doesn't mean you don't speak a hard word. Tough love is a real thing. Tough love is an act of grace. He goes on to say, take off all bitterness and wrath and anger. Oh, wait, but he just said, be angry and do not sin. It's, it's implied here that, that the anger he's talking about in this part is, is more of like an outburst of anger. He says, don't let your anger control you. He says, take off all these things and put on kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Paul says, the things that harm your brothers and sisters in Christ with no good purpose and serve no good cause, take these things off. Stop doing them, rid yourself of them, be imitators of God. So as we kind of wrap up, worship team comes back up. I want to challenge us. Paul, I think it's really easy to, to look at Paul's life and see all the massively amazing things he did for God or, or God did through him. You know, he was a missionary and, and traveled all around. He planted churches. He, um, his faith stayed strong. It was strengthened in the midst of persecution. He did all these amazing things. I think that makes it a little easy to actually overlook Paul's character sometimes. But it's somewhere else in scripture, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate God. So genuinely ask yourself, is my life worth imitating? And get specific. What areas of your life are worth imitating and what aren't? Like, like go home, prayerfully consider these things, ask a friend, ask a spouse. What areas would you encourage someone to imitate me? Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's the kind of talk that doesn't build people up. And don't mistakenly think that you just need to do better. Right? We said that from the beginning. Belief drives behavior. Dig deep and ask yourself, what am I believing? What am I not believing about these things that's causing this? And and realize that, that when you try to be more godly, it's not just trying. It's relying on God, his spirit working inside you. That's how change happens. That's how you imitate God. We're gonna take communion over the next song and and part of communion is a reminder that we can't do these things. We can't do anything in regard to our Christian faith on our own. Right, through the cross, Jesus gave his body and his blood up for us so that we could be in a relationship with God. And it is through that that God does his work. So remember that as you take communion today. If you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, this is the one part of the service we ask you to, to not partake in. Um, instead, we, we encourage you to just reflect on, on Jesus and who he is. Over the next song, feel free to step out the side doors there. We can't take communion in here. As we can't have food or drink. Um, step out in the hallway. Uh, and um, just remember that you are called to imitate God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that um, you don't just leave us to wonder what it's like to imitate you. Um, we thank you that we don't, you don't just leave us to wonder what you're like or who you are, but you tell us directly and boldly 
that we are new, that you have made us new. You tell us directly and boldly that we are your beloved children. But then you also tell us directly and boldly how we ought to act in light of that. So God, I pray um, for each of us here that we do just that. We examine ourselves. We examine our beliefs and figure out where am I not living a godly life? God, just come and convict us. Help us to repent. May we turn away from sin and look to you. May we put off the old self and put on the new self. And we pray and ask these things. Amen.